Hi, this is Joe Huggins with the Rocky Mountain Short Takes on Suicide Prevention Podcast. Today I'm at the Bridging the Divide Conference and talking with Dr. Ursula Whiteside, a licensed clinical psychologist and CEO of NowMattersNow.org. Hi, Ursula. I'm so glad that you could join us today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this field? Yes, absolutely. So um, uh, thanks for having me, and I'm really um, hoping that I can provide some useful information for, say, a clinician who is listening to this podcast and wants to know some of the research that may be useful for the work that they do. But yeah, why why are you interviewing me, or what's my background? I am a clinical psychologist by training. I went to the University of Washington and focused on research, and really my um, I focused on suicide prevention, well, mental health and addictions while I was in graduate school. And I worked with a woman named Marsha Linehan, which, who many of you know of, who are familiar with dialectical behavior therapy. So she's the developer of that treatment. So I moved out there in 1999, actually, as an undergraduate. Once I'd figure out the furthest you can go in psychology is to become a clinical psychologist. And it turned out I just loved research when I started taking my research methods class as an undergrad. So I moved out there and talked my way into her research lab and talked my way into having a full-time job there as an undergraduate as both the clinical intake coordinator, so the patient coordinator, but also the coordinator of the therapist. So my job really was all around to see the day-to-day experiences of people who were at higher risk for suicide, who'd had multiple suicide attempts, who'd fallen through cracks and often came to us um, at the point where they they felt like this was their last hope. So that was the environment I came up in. So being around these people and then uh, being around these staff, these researchers, these clinicians who were in this research laboratory in Marshall Linehan's laboratory who were so passionate about these people. And in that became this um, almost like a, a, a tribe where we were all in it together, not only us, but also our patients. But we, our job was to take care of them and to make sure that they were protected and that they knew that they were valued. And I have to say that was one of the most um, meaningful times in my life because I was part of something bigger than myself, and we were all on the same page. You know, we were like siblings. We would fight here or there, and, but we all knew we were in it together, and we all had each other's backs. It reminds me of the show West Wing. I, you know, that's a million years old, but I just started watching the episodes, and it's still actually perfectly relevant today and useful. Um, but what I, what I start to cry sometimes while I'm watching it because I'm like, that's how it was in Marshall Linehan's lab. Like we were just in it together, and because it was so important to us, um, and that we were like brother and sister, and uh, brothers and sisters, and we had each other's back, and I. I really have to acknowledge a woman named Sarah Reynolds who was a psychologist and a postdoc there and who noticed me and said, you know, um, why don't you come and do this or why don't you come and do that and recommended me for a paid job there. So the the, the mentorship that impacted everything. Um, so anyway, I kind of came up in Marsha Linehan's lab and then and I um, also completed my graduate school training at the University of Washington with most of my clinical training being in Marshall Linehan's lab. So there I was a research therapist. So she had this trial that was ongoing 
where they, we were working with patients who had multiple suicide attempts, and we were randomizing them to different interventions. And I was one of the DBT expert clinicians. So um, that was one of, uh, one of the powerful experiences of myself as a graduate student, both seeing my successes as a provider and my failures, and having that very well documented because they, we were constantly being adherence monitored. Um, so I learned a lot about myself. Um, so that's a little bit about my background. Then I went to do my clinical internship, which is a year-long process at the University of Washington as well. And what I found was that these people who had come to us saying, this is my last hope, I saw them earlier in the f- process of things. I saw them when they showed up after uh, a near-lethal overdose, and they were in the um, ICU, and they had just taken had their intubation tube taken out, and I was going to figure out how I could be helpful. I saw how bad the system was. This missed opportunity that our system had, this this place where we could have made a difference, and what yet we didn't have the resources and the knowledge to know what to do. I mean, that's why I danced up and down when the Affordable Care Act passed, and when I finally had patients who. Um, were saying, yeah, I'm coming because I have this insurance. I wouldn't have been able to get it otherwise. What was so painful about being on my clinical internship was seeing these people and knowing exactly what they needed. They needed dialectical behavior therapy. They needed intensive treatment for a year. They needed DBT skills and the wait list being six months long and only for people who could pay. And that's not who these people were. So that very powerful experience drove me to become a researcher during my postdoc in a health system, so one of the Kaiser health systems in Seattle. And with the mind towards, okay, we will never have enough clinicians trained to provide the intensity of treatment that we need. And at the same time, the need is not going anywhere. Um, And so the research project that I worked on at that time was developing a resource for people who um, who had been suicidal and maybe wouldn't otherwise get access to um, support from DBT. So part of the research that I did was creating this public resource with a team of people who'd been suicidal um, so that if somebody came to the ER and then was in the ICU and then was leaving without an inpatient hospitalization, that at least what I could do would be to give them a referral to this website. If I couldn't get them a, an appointment in the next few days or if I wasn't sure they were going to show up to that appointment. So this public resource created is called nowmattersnow.org. And part of the vision that came out of that where that vision came from was the suffering that I saw on my clinical internship. So when we, we'll talk about in a moment that there's this idea or there's this research on the caring messages or caring contacts having such a powerful effect on people who are suicidal or really struggling with mental health issues. And so the way that I have sort of conceptualized delivering this public resource um, is by having it in the in the context of a caring message. So even if you are you met with somebody for ten minutes, but you learned something personal about them as a clinician, you would write a note to them on the back of this business card, essentially a personalized m- business card. And on the other side is a reference or is a is a link to the Now Matters Now website. 
the idea being there that there's something tangible you're walking away with, it's personalized, and it's giving you a resource that you can access for free anytime you want, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, whatever. So people could go to this website. I've mentioned this website. We're going to talk a little bit more about it. But the, the main point being that it was intentionally, the design was conducted by myself and people with lived experience. So people who had been suicidal, had multiple suicide attempts. We conceptualized this product. We built this product, and I mean free resource, with the support from American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and the National Institutes of Mental Health. We conceptualized it. We built it. And what it has is real people who've been suicidal talking about their stories and their personal experience and how they got through those. So that's it. I'll tell you more about it, but that's just a little bit about who I am. Thank you. Thank you for that. In listening to you, I feel like I should give a shout-out to to my lab and Dr. Lisa Brenner, who has been a great mentor to me and has, has set up that kind of that same sort of lab where we're all in this together and we all have this common mission. So it, it, it's like passing, passing this along to, to us. One of the things that you touch on here is the systems approach that it's – and you use the, the phrase, we're all in this together – but it is, it's more than just this all resting on my shoulders. It seems like it's an, something that, much more than that. Can you tell us a little bit? I think that being a clinician can actually be a fairly lonely experience um, because of the time commitments, because of the um, you know, emotional energy that it takes, and um, because oftentimes our systems are not necessarily built designed in a way where we create this atmosphere of mutual support and stepping up for each other when we need it and then taking care of people when they're more burned out. And there's a lot of that stuff that dialectical behavior therapy has built in that we haven't yet figured out how to reimburse in medical, in the, the medical model, right? But this is absolutely what's needed to take care of the health of our clinicians. So one of the things I really love about this zero suicide approach, this systems approach to suicide prevention, is that it takes the, the responsibility off of the shoulders of the individual clinician and says, as a health system, hey, leadership is saying it's our responsibility to set the system up for your success. And if you're struggling, if you're seeing suicides, we need to give you the training that you need, the support that you need. And that that's just what's done. It's not like something you have to think of afterwards that we should have done. It's part of the building of a zero suicide health system. It's there from the top because can you imagine the trauma of a person that has to a person experiences to get to the point where they kill themselves and then there's this additional trauma that happens when somebody loses a patient to suicide and they don't have the the system around them to wrap themselves around and say we're here for you there's creating a, another trauma in that sense so so I appreciate the question so one of this this idea the, that you also brought up is the idea of lived experience. And one of the things that we've done a few interviews now with folks with lived experience, and one of the things that keeps coming up, at least that I am hearing, is the collaboration, learning from this this shared experience, this lived experience. Can you say a little bit more about that? I mean, I think... I and many people knew intuitively that you we need to be present when something bad happens to somebody. But that's not what we were trained to do. Humans 
for whatever reason, we step away for the most part when somebody is suffering intensely emotionally. And maybe this wasn't always the case, but for some reason, this, this is, um, what, what, what can happen. And I, so I think, um, yeah, the voice of lived experience, it's filling in a lot of the details that we were very fuzzy on, um, that maybe we thought were important, but then when you hear from the mouth of somebody who's been suicidal, your ears perk up and your memory holds on better. One of the things I think so powerful about the stories of lived experiences, I remember them, right? I mean, I can go to a talk and hear an hour of really valuable information, but if there are stories that are woven in, the likelihood of me remembering them increases tenfold. And so, you know, there's a number of wonderful things about lived experience storytelling and valuing lived experience. Um, And I think one of the things we're learning is that we need to acknowledge and when we witness somebody sharing their lived experience or when they're going through some kind of very difficult event, that when somebody discloses, yes, I've had depression or yes, I've had anxiety, even um, in a passing way, that we commit to ourselves to acknowledge that and to just say, hey, I noticed that you said that. Thank you for telling me that, right? To just acknowledge that it happened. Um, you know, I have a, you know, um, a lovely person that I'm, I'm working with, and just the other day they mentioned, um, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to my therapist appointment. I said, you know, you never told me that. Thank you. I appreciate you mentioning that to me. Um, because, you know, you're, when you're in that position of being uncertain about sharing information, you're paying really close attention to the response of the person you're telling it to. But the person being that's being uh, told to doesn't get that. Like, we don't know that we are being watched so closely for our response. What we may think is, I don't want to make that person who's disclosing uncomfortable, but that, that gives a certain body language that that isn't this not actually calming for the person who's sharing something that is sensitive or that um is personal in a way that they haven't before um so i just i keep that rule i think rules are really important that rules thank somebody when they tell you that they have have had a mental health experience or they're going through something hard just like look at them and acknowledge like hey thank you for telling me that and then and then listen so, um, so I appreciate that question about lived experience. Thank you very much. You know, we're here at the Bridging the Divide conference. You've got two sessions, keynote, and another session tomorrow, and you've got to get off to dinner. We could talk for quite a while longer, but any closing words you'd have, and I should say for our audience, we'll invite Ursula back uh, another time, but any closing things you'd like to say? Um, I think, so thank you, Joe. You've been um, so gracious. I, I think the power of caring contacts and messages, I just feel like that cannot be understated. And so thinking of rules, right? The rule of acknowledge somebody when they've shared something. The rule here is to send a caring message. And I and my rule, um, and not in a negative, not in a punitive way, but my rule is to send a caring message every day. So that may be just because I notice them in my stream on Facebook. That might be just because they pop into my head. That might be because I'm consciously going to myself, which I try to do once a week. It, try to go, who have I not heard from? 
who has not been on Facebook, but who used to be, who has been more grumpy than usual, you know, and then that's the person I send a caring message to not assuming that they're having a hard time and not saying you must be ill. Um, but saying like, Hey, you know, I'm holding you in my mind. That's it. I'm just holding you in my mind. And that's all. So I think that's the, the most important thing I want to impart is to think of in your own life, your personal life, not just your clients. And I, but I do challenge you to send caring messages to your clients, but in your personal lives, I challenge you to do that on a regular basis and to think about, to remember as Shelby Rose says that nobody suffers pretty. And so that person who's kind of being a pain in the butt may be the one who needs the caring message the most. Well, that wraps it up for this week's short takes podcast. Thanks for joining us. And we look forward to having you visit us again. In the meantime, think about giving us a review on Apple's iTunes. And we'll see you next time for more on short takes on suicide prevention.